Welcome to Pod Academy. In this podcast, we welcome the author Harry Kunzwu, who came to read and answer some questions about his work at an event at Birkbeck, the University of London. The event was co-convened by Bianca Leggett, who explained her reasons for bringing this group of academics, writers and fans together to discuss Kunzwu's work. My work looks at uh, British contemporary fiction and uh, new cosmopolitan forms and tries to bridge those things together, which is something Harry's work does. Um, I've been very struck by the sense that Harry Kunstry's work, by being so restless and inventive, really stretches over a great deal of expertise and uh, scholars haven't been brought together before. So uh, I was determined to make that happen. I'm delighted it finally has. Before Bianca speaks to the author, we're going to get an introduction from some of the attendees on the day. Dave Gunning is a lecturer in English literature at the University of Birmingham. Harry Kunzu, I mean, first uh, really came to prominence in this country uh, as one of the grants abreast of young British novelists in 2003. Um, on the strength of his, his one published novel at that time. I mean, since then, um, certainly academics might uh, get worked up about to what extent he can be classed as a British novelist, given the global themes that are inside his work. But certainly they seem to have identified the talent correctly. And The Impressionist, which also won the Betty Trask Prize, is a story of an Indian boy trying out various identities in the early 20th century. It takes a sort of romp through moments of the colonial era, but it's also completely tied into contemporary concerns about identity, uh, what it means to be authentic, what it might mean to actually possess an identity. And throughout the subsequent works, we see this mix of uh, an intellectually informed uh, level of understanding of uh, debates around, around culture, and particularly contemporary culture, tied to this uh, uh, wonderful storytelling sense. We see how the contemporary world is experienced and how people orientate themselves within that. In Transmission, then, the second novel in 2005, we get a computer virus bringing together the worlds of Bollywood cinema, brand management, Fortress Europe, and the low status of Indian tech workers in the US. It's a broad, intertwined, and very funny book. In 2007, My Revolutions is more serious in tone and revisits the political activism of the, of the 1960s uh, in Britain. In 2011, he revisited this, um, what's been labelled the network novel, these interconnected narratives with Gods Without Men, um, with these broad narratives crossing historical periods, but all finding a geographical base in the unearthly landscapes of the Mojave Desert. Last year, uh, Kunzu's story, Memory Palace, formed the centre <coughs> of an exhibition at the V&A in which a number of visualised in different modes uh, interpreted sections of this dystopic vision that tells the story of a world where it, to remember things is a crime. His recent work shows further interest in expanding the possibilities of the literary form with the recent release of his digital tone poem, Twice Upon a Time, which uses text, image, recorded street sound uh, alongside the work of the composer Moondog to offer an immersive portrait of contemporary New York, but one which nonetheless resonates with the aural ghosts of an earlier incarnation of that city. Earlier this year, Country was awarded an extremely prestigious Guggenheim Fellowship, 
Uh, so we can hopefully continue to expect further stimulating attention to the connections and conflicts that form some of our global space. My name is uh, Pietra Palazzolo. I'm um, um, a doctor in uh, modern and contemporary literature. Um, I teach at uh, Essex University and the Open University. My interest in Harry Kunzro's work um, is in uh, um, is in the way he subverts uh, fixed categories of knowledge, uh, both on a thematic level and on a formal level. Um, thematically, for example, he challenges multiculturalism, uh, which is one of the um, categories he had been he has been uh, that has been used in describing him, and also he challenges strategies of um, homogenization uh, of otherness. So what he does. Um, is interesting to me because instead of attempting uh, to represent um, um, ethnic um, authenticity, he invites us to go beyond the comfortable parameters of what is defined as otherness. He rejects the politics of assimilation, of cultural diversity. Uh, there is a play in uh, current policy making, but also in the recent emphasis in the media uh, on national boundaries, ideas of Britishness and British values. Um, formally, what interests me in his work is um, the way that he invites us to participate in the creative resonance, resonances that uh, his um, latest works especially highlight. For example, Gods Without Men and uh, his multimodal essay, Twice Upon a Time. I focus on his work for the way that uh, he um, combines his critique of uh, um, fixed categories of knowledge with um, uh, peculiar emphasis on the way that literature can be read uh, and uh, experienced. My name is Christian Shaw. I'm doing an AHRC funded PhD at Keele University. Um, my research examines contemporary manifestations of cosmopolitanism in contemporary um, 21st century British American fiction, examining how ethical ideals are a necessity to face a culture of connectivity um, engendered by globalisation, uh, transnationalism and digital uh, commutative technology. And so I'm interested in how um, Harry Kundru um, describes how these contemporary processes engender a need to construct um, new analytical paradigms to perceive the interrelatedness of people and cultures around the world and this, how the situation requires a cosmopolitan perspective to grasp the erosions of boundaries dividing people and life worlds. I think Harry Kunzru is one of the most interesting contemporary authors um, because of the way in which he's managing to capture the concerns of the moment, not just in the types of narratives he's telling, but in the ways he's using form and our relationship with types of storytelling in order to draw us into those uh, stories of the contemporary world, a contemporary world which is shaped by you know, what, we, what we can call globalisation, but it's to do with the movements of people, it's to do with the, the range and uh, ubiquitousness of technology in the current age. For me, I'm interested in particularly in how his characters find places to belong within cultural formations, the ways in which there's a negotiation of these difficult spaces 
And what I find particularly interesting with Kunzru is the way in which he draws on some radical experimental traditions. These are characters finding places. He reminds us every now and again that these are characters and not people. He takes that step back from his work. His characters regularly vanish. In nearly all of his novels, I think all of his major novels, a character vanishes at some point. He takes his characters out. He makes us think again about how an author might go about constructing a suitable response to the 21st century. He's not an obscure, difficult experimental writer, but when you read him, you realise something is different at the same time as being able to connect to what are extremely gripping and often very funny stories. Now we hear from Bianca again, this time in conversation with the author. So I thought I might start with a question which you asked to, I think it was uh, Rachel Kushner, so it's only, only fair to direct back at you. What's your story about how you got from being born to publishing a novel? Boom. That, yeah, it's a very peculiar way I was speaking to. I, I, I mean, I, could, I, could, I suppose I could kind of tell a story about being a, a, a reader, but I mean, I was definitely a child who used books as an escape. I, I was not specially happy in my skin or, or where I was, or indeed, you know, anywhere else. And, and, uh, and I, was, I was drawn to kind of extravagant fantasies. I was a sort of Tolkien and Narnia and Earthsea kid. In fact, I've just, I've just come back from Portland, right? I've just done an interview with Ursula Le Guin. I saw that. And uh, oh, yeah, I got, that was a, a sort of reconnection with, with one of the first things that reading meant to me and, and, and what it might mean to make, to make stories. And, to, and I think that was the first version of, 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 of what it meant to be a writer was to be somebody who did this extraordinary favour to other people, which is, you know, that, that for these writers had done to me, which was, which was provide me a, a space where things worked differently and things, you know, things were, were not like they were in, in my daytime at school. And uh, you let slip earlier that you were a big uh, Second Life or a digital, uh, you were a big video ga- game uh, enthusiast. Yeah, I said Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons. Back, back, in, back in the olden days. Okay. Before, the, before, I mean, at that point, video games were like a little green, like Lunar Lander. Like, there was not much. You could, I, actually, I did, I did, when I was quite small, I did play, when, I did play the first ever uh, adventure. It was a game called, called Adventure that you had to, uh, my dad had a friend who was interested in such things, and it was a, at the time, modems, you put your phone receiver, those big old, big, like, whatever, plastic phone receivers into a cradle. And he was, I think it was actually University of London. He was dialing into the University of London, and you could pay this text adventure, which would say, you know, you come to a, a cave, there are three exits. Do you take the first, second, or third? And you type in one, two, or three, and then a, you know, wow. a gnome comes up, and you have... And Choose they, your own know, adventure. Sort of. Yeah, exactly, exactly that. And, and, that, and they were so crude, and they were so... And it was it was so schematic and simple, but but that that whole possibility and then the pen and paper things you could do were very, you know, you could be more sophisticated. And it was essentially a form of storytelling. You know, you grab your friends together and give them characters, and then and then create a situation for them to be in. So, so that first sort of version of fiction for me was it was world building. It's the thing that science fiction writers talk about still about this kind of the idea of a kind of coherent alternate place. Yeah. Which is, you know, absolutely different from, from the kind of notion of, of, of making a text that one gets from literary modernism, say. 
Right. So do you see your own work as growing out of literary modernism or out of that uh, childhood inheritance of science fiction? Well, it's, it's a horrible, fiction, bastard or? combination of both. I mean, that's, <laughs> the, that's the thing. I, mean, I, I think that all attempts to make the novel cleave to, to a sort of high modernist notion of, of sort of rationality and progress fail because the novel gets involved in stuff. I mean, words refer and, and, and the novel always sort of ends up being... You know, it, it, a novel can never be as as rigorous as a Malevich painting, or right. you know, it, 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 it can't. It always it always ends up outside itself. It gets involved in the world. It says something that's you know uses words which then cease to have meaning, or which which are you know time limited, or, or you know, it, it's it's a baggy monster. I can't remember whose phrase that is. However, there's I mean, I you know, in saying in saying that it, you know it will always fail to be modernist in that sense of, of, of sort of rigour. I, I do think that the British novel has, has totally closed itself off to interesting possibilities of modernism and, and, and has, you know, found, found itself in rather a... Cold-sick. Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, I, th- I, think, I think there's a lot of middle-brow tedium masquerading as literary mm-hmm. fiction around in, in Britain and, and it should be... <laughs> a strong statement. Yeah. Uh, I like it. So, where do you feel the novel should be going? How should it be evolving to reflect this world that we're we're living in? What direction? Which authors excite you in their experiments? I'll, I'll, I'll leave the names out of it, but, the, but for the moment. But, the, but I mean, I'd say firstly that the novel has always always had the great strength of of when it decides to be involved in the world and the times that it's made in, that, that because of the sort of uh, fluidity of the form, the capaciousness of the form of the novel, it, it has, has a way of, of speaking about the time of its making that is, it, you know, I don't, I don't think any other art form quite can. And as a mode of storytelling, I think it has a huge advantage over various sorts of visual... I mean, we, we get most of our stories from films, at the moment, cinema, in terms of the sheer number of narratives we consume, by and large, because it takes ninety minutes, two hours to watch a movie, we get that we see a lot of and movies. Game of Thrones, of course. And of course, the mighty <laughs> game of Thrones. Um, but you know, of course, to show something on a screen, even in Game of Thrones, you have to uh, you have to show it. You know, if somebody is sad, you have to see them <coughs> crying, or you have to place them by a window and have the rain coming down, and you know, you have to you have to. You have to externalise it, whereas the, and you know, and you have all sorts of constraints to do with, with budget and, and so on and so forth. Whereas a you know a novel can, can go in and out of, of consciousness. It can swap. You can flip from consciousness to consciousness. It can, you know, it can do the retreat from Moscow, and it can it can spend a hundred pages, you know, discussing a, a flower. And and the, that kind of elasticity, I think, makes it very a very good form for. Uh, dealing with complexity and for dealing with the the network nature of contemporary life, I think to do that, the novel has to, has to ditch a certain sort of investment in richness of psychology. And I, I, I remember a bit. Everybody bashes this thing, this sort of rather straw man realism. You know, your novel's realist, mine is something else. But you know, but. I, you know, I do think there's a there's a sort of luxuriating in the in the bounded individual that doesn't ring true to me anymore, and I think that's why a lot of people are writing things that are 
bleeding non-fiction into fiction. I mean, I've, I've been doing a certain amount of that lately as well, but the, I, I, and there's a sort of, there's something to be explored there. I'm surprised that not more novelists are excited by the, the, all the new linguistic forms that are turning up. I mean, there, were, there was a sort of 90s spate of email novels, the epistolary novel. I, mean, I never read one that was any good, but people used to, when I was a, a young journalist at Wired magazine in the mid-90s, people you know occasionally small presses would put out a novel called, you know, At David or something. And it was right. like that, that at sign for a while was the sign of modernity. It was the sign And the email's always in, in Korea New in a different font to yeah, signify exactly. this is not the real novel. Yeah. 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 And um, there's so many more forms of communication. I mean, I, I spend a lot of time on weird bits of the internet and I, and I, I derive great profit and pleasure from that. Um, I was watching a lot of haul videos the other day. Does anybody know what, what they are? There seems to be a whole genre of mostly young women narrating their shopping. You talk about the garment, about why you like it. You, you know, you. I mean, people can be doing a lot of shopping as well, and, and some people have managed to make this into because they've got so many followers that their YouTube channels are getting significant advertising wherever you need that allows them then to buy more stuff. And so there's this kind of incredible consumption going on. And it's very difficult for me to get to that, but there's a, these hugely popular things. And so the way they talk, I mean, listening to registers, like that, I suppose that's what I'm saying, is that there are, there are a lot of ways of addressing the world and self-presentation that people are able to do now through, through various sort of internet-based forms that maybe, I'd, I'd say, they're changing our notion of selfhood completely. And that surely is the territory of the novelist. Right, that, yeah, but also uh, I know you tell me you've been uh, working on uh, a response to um, Ryan Tre uh, Treketon's, um work and he it looks a little bit at identity and uh, digital presentation. Do you think that the literary world and the art world or installation or, or that sort of branch, are, are they having the same conversation about identity? Can well again, I'm, I'm very, very surprised that there there's not more crossover. I mean, I... I'm interested in contemporary art and I'm interested in the conversations and the critical conversations that take place around contemporary art. But it seems there's a, there's a real gap in the ways of talking between especially British literary fiction and, and British contemporary art. Right. And, and you know, I, I have to say that most British literary fiction feels like it's lumbering behind in, in its address of such things as identity and self-presentation and so on. And that's frustrating. Um, um, why? Why do you think that that is? Because you're in you're in the states now, and it seems very much you're in a you're a part of a bigger conversation that's uh, that's happening over there between contemporary artists and novelists and some really interesting um, collaborations. Um, what is it about um, the British scene? Do you think that makes it lag behind, or is it a false comparison to put this very small island pitted against uh, the US? This sort of um, Enormous powerhouse. Blame Jane Austen. There's a certain investment in the novel of manners, conceived in a you know in sort of marriage, you know, marriages at the end kind of thing. That I still think kind of. I mean, it sells here. That's partly. I mean, you can you can make a living as sort of recycling Jane Austen plots. And you know, I have a sort of theory about the Indian novel as well. The popularity of eighties and nineties mm -hmm. popularity of Indian fiction is that you can you can do quite nineteenth century novel plots 
or you could at that at that moment because there are real barriers to the boy and the girl getting together. Right, Pride and Prejudice, a classic. Oh yeah, right, exactly. But those those ideas. But I I don't know. I mean, a lot of American literary fiction is is nonsense as well. New York at the moment seems more cosmopolitan, maybe, but I don't know, I haven't been here, living here for six years, so I think things may have changed here as well. I mean, maybe people are engaged with, with networks of people that, that are working with fiction. Well, you've touched um, on one of our big uh, buzzwords for the day, cosmopolitan, transnational, national, mm-hmm. and how much these um, categories do any sort of useful work when we, if we read your work as, uh, as transnational, certainly you've engaged a lot with the interconnected world with stories that take us across borders of time and space. This, this term translit, which Douglas Copeland proposed to describe uh, your work, um, Gods Without Men. So this, this term cosmopolitan seems to uh, have a lot of different applications. Is it, is it a word you would use to describe your own work? You see, you have to, you have to add the, the word rootless to, uh, to cosmopolitan, and then you get to that. You know, that's the old anti-Semitic insult, which actually weirdly turns up under my pieces in, in the Guardian, the, the Evil Guardian oh, really? website, you know, which is sort of home for right-wing trolls of all mm. kinds to <laughs> uh, abuse people like me. Uh, early on in my fiction writing, I suppose the Impressionist was, was all about trying to reclaim some idea of rootlessness and reclaim uh, some idea of inauthenticity. I mean, it's always been thrown at me throughout my life that I'm insufficiently white. And, as, and more lately in India, that I'm insufficiently brown. I mean, you know, I, I'm... I, I restricted myself to one sarcastic tweet about Narendra Modi's election, and it was like my phone broke. There were like two days of, of abuse from um, Hindu nationalists, and, and the, their register is very interesting. They, they, they call me a sepoy. That's, that's the big kind of, you know, that's the sort of house nigger kind of uh, insult of choice. Always bringing up my English mother. And yes, I'm, I clearly am insufficiently Indian. You know, I'm not in any straightforward way uh, Indian. But that, that, that idea of never fully fully being being authentic was was always the you know problem and being mixed race you know this idea that one is impure and so the impressionist was a sort of was very self-consciously an idea of writing a fable for people like me and for kind of trying to understand what I suppose you could call cosmopolitanism as a, as, a, as a positive as opposed to being right. you know the, the sort of in, infectious supplement that destroys the integrity of the Vulcan, the nation, and, 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 you know, I mean, it's still the same conversation we're having. We're still really in this, especially now, here. I mean, my God, we've, you know, we've, we've, now, we've now got the, the, the rise of UKIP and all that, and we are back to having the conversation that I thought we were pretty much done with in the late 80s. And so we have to refight that, or I feel I have to refight that. I mean, it's... it's uh, but there is, I mean, there's a, the way that the cosmopolitan as a figure works now is problematic because the cosmopolitan is is also sort of very tied up in in the rootlessness of capital and and the destruction of certain sorts of forms of life that people people are invested in and that they organise their identities around that are being creatively destroyed in right. order to make us more amenable to being reformed by capital and and so I mean that's interestingly one of the you know the Guardian neo reactionary kind of comment regular thing that's thrown at, thrown at me is that as a, a sort of, you know, I bang the drum for, for a kind of 
multiculturalism or cosmopolitanism or whatever it is and, and they understand that as an attack on certain sorts of forms of life that are resistant to capital right and I think there's something interesting there about uh, I mean in transmission I, I got very interested in speed and slowness and, and the idea that there is there is an elite global class who can move across the surface of the earth in, in an unimpeded friction-free right. kind of way there's I mean the guy the, person at the end of it is called Guy Swift. He's a, you know, he, he moves, but everywhere is the same to Guy Swift. Everywhere, everywhere in every hotel room has the same stuff in the minibar. Um, and then you have that detail about the uh, the two, I think, were they Ghanaian boys stashed away in the in the plane? Um, you know, the wheel art of the plane. And, yeah. and, and, and it's, it's a novel about people who have various speeds. And mm. the Arjun Mehta in that novel can move because he is a skilled migrant, but he mm. is hedged around by the administrative categories of his visa status and then you know it's seen at the edges of the book there are agricultural workers and all sorts of people who either can't move at all or are moved you know they're moved without wanting to you know they're, right. they're refugees or they're economic migrants or whatever so but maybe cosmopolitanism from above and from below is yeah you know. right so i mean what a poor cosmopolitan is a refugee mm. um yeah and and, and so these ideas, that, you know, that, I mean, they're, you know, open up any lifestyle magazine, and you you will get a lot of a lot of violent, rather sort of unthinking valorization of of, of the the, wonder, the wonders of cosmopolitanism, or you know, diversity, or, or whatever, without any kind of address of the very real questions that are leading to this sort of nationalist backlash. Right. You know, which I don't discount at all, because I actually think they, I think they're real important questions, and there is a sort of sense of you know of, of, of resistance. I'm quite interested in in the, the neo reactionary ideas that are sort of floating around in the European yeah. right, because there's a there's a set of stories about what it means to have an identity there that is is resistant to a, a yeah. I mean, there was there was you know term it this as a coffee coloured liberal cosmopolitan elite but yeah it, it's, it's 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 not good enough to to just just you know just just say that they're a bunch of fascists and should you know well, go back I, to their whole I wonder then do you, do you feel as a as a novelist that you have any sort of obligation to to push back against these narratives I mean um, as your deputy president of Penn in, in Britain which is a uh, very uh, sort of active um, human rights position your, there was your reading of um, some of Rushdie's uh, um, Midnight's Children at uh, Jaipur, which which satanic caused verses. sorry satanic verses satanic verses. I'm sorry, Midnight's satanic. Children. Yes. Okay, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder how um, if you see your own work as political, or what's probably a different question: Should a novelist write with political intent? I think novelists can write with political intent and novelists who don't write with political intent can be read politically either with or against the, the grain. I mean, I, I, the more I think, I've, I tr I, I've at various points tried to sort of sally forth with an essay about the novel and politics and I always get terribly tangled up because I actually think, you know, is every good literary critic knows the intent of the novelist is neither here nor there. Right. But, um, but I mean, Actually, the novelist as a figure in contemporary culture isn't just a somebody, somebody who's a name on a book. You're forced into all sorts of public roles. I mean, we all have to sort of, you know, whether, whether you want to present yourself or not, you have to present a persona or a figure. I mean, and I've, I am a person who, 
who gets uh, well, I, I give my opinion when I'm asked for my opinion on social and political questions and so I get mixed up in other kinds of conversation that are not maybe sort of properly artistic conversations you know I know I have friends who, who, who write novels who refuse to speak outside that form you know I mean you'll never catch David Mitchell getting in the middle of some conversation about multiculturalism but uh, you know, but, but, but I suppose what I'm saying is 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 the 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 politics often come with this business of self-presentation or mm. trying to present a version of what it might mean to you to be an artist and to address the public. And obviously, social media exacerbates that and then gives a very very immediate feedback. I mean, you know, I mm. I've, I've managed to wean myself off getting into it on Twitter with with people, right. but I have done that in do, the past. Do you I've find you have to shut down some of that, that noise then of the Guardian comment board of, of uh, yeah, Twitter? Yeah, I've, I've made a vow never ever to read below the line in the Guardian <laughs> comments again because it's actually upsetting. It gets, you know, it, it can kind of, you know, it, it can uh, knock you off your game for a while. But I don't, you know, I don't mind, you know, if I, I, I mean, Twitter is clearly a public space and that it's quite interesting to sort of throw certain sorts of, you know, obviously it's very compressed as well and you throw these little quite kind of compressed and maybe unnuanced right. utterances into this pot and, and random people start shouting back at you and it's a, I mean I learned things from yeah. doing that. It reminds me of your description of New York in Twice Upon a Time somewhere where everything is out, out loud rather than in the head maybe we're just a more of an out loud uh, culture could you tell us a little bit about Twice Upon a Time I don't think we've mentioned that yet we've looked at it and, and in that's, the workshop. That's, a, that's a, a direction for my work that I'm hoping to explore further because I think, I mean, along with Memory Palace, I, I am interested in what, you know, in, in, in sort of different formal possibilities for writing and different ways of, of, of presenting writing. The Twice Upon a Time project is, is, is with a publisher who has, which is a, a well-financed publisher which can push out material to a large number of people but which is committed to doing digital first or digital only things. I don't even really know what to call it. Somebody said, I, I, I liked your ensemble. Ah. Uh, I, I, I was going to go with digital ensemble. tone poem. It's digital, some, I, that, that turned up in a review, I didn't it? It sounds quite posh, digital tone poem. Um, I mean, I'll, you know, I'll take either of those. I mean, those are very nice descriptions. But... The, the, the point being that uh, in a kind of the end of the book and the beginning of writing kind of way is that you, you can do something that is uh, has that sort of fluid feeling that digital formats give and then I also included images and sounds and I made these images and I made these sounds and was able to kind of make something that uh, uh, made these things work together and had a kind of a more sort of visceral experience of this text, and it's a text about when I, I moved to New York in 2008 thinking I was going to be there for nine months to do a fellowship at the New York Public Library, and I, I haven't left yet. And, uh, but when I, I arrived, I was, I was very, I was more, I was more upended by the experience of changing place than I thought I would be. I'd gone there, I'd made this application to, to, to use the library to, to, to write a book about 16th century India. It was a, something that in a way was quite continuous with the Impressionist project. It's going to be set at a, a sort of slightly fantastical version of the court of the Emperor Akbar. 
and I got to New York and, and that thing just fell apart in my hands and I was sitting in this, you know, I'd be, spend my day sitting in this office kind of very nervous about the fact that I had essentially the perfect setup to work. You know, I'd be given some money and I had a lovely office and the resources of one of the world's great research libraries and I had no book. You know, my concentration was sort of shot and I was very weirded out by being in this new city in a way that I wasn't expecting to be. I, so I was just taking notes as I was, I was getting lost a lot as well. I've been actually like walking the wrong way and, you know, and getting on the seat getting on an E-train thinking it was the C-train and instead of getting to the Upper West Side to see my friend finding myself in some part of Queens that where everyone seemed to be Ecuadorian. <laughs> and um, those kind of experiences, you know, I kept a notebook and eventually, and then somehow it connected with Moondog, blind street musician. And then I was also, the main thing was I was, I was living in a ground floor apartment, a studio apartment with no possessions. I decided quite self-consciously to live this very sort of monkish existence as sort of a mattress and a you know a single shelf of books and but I was on 10th street which is a kind of popular place to go out and it's very hot summer so I was having the window open and everybody would come sit on my stoop just by my head basically and have their conversations they make their phone calls and they'd break up with their boyfriend or they'd score drugs or they'd, they'd shout at their mom or just whatever they would be Doing and this stuff, would, and I'd be sleep, I was sleeping badly, and it would kind of these fragments would get into my sleep. So this kind of jangled experience of being in this place found its way into a very sort of fragmentary form, and then and it all got very wrapped up with sound and trying to kind of center myself and and what you know trying to deal with this sort of invasive sound world, and then you know finally five years after that, it started life as a sort of magazine piece, which just sort of chopped up sections and then I added the pictures in and, and the sounds and, and made this ensemble and that's, that's felt like the right form for that kind of exploration for you know for thinking about the city I mean you know there are things like the arcades project Benjamin's arcades project and Manhattan transfer and all sorts of uh, all sorts of kinds of work that have attacked the city from from a point of view of fragments and, and bits and pieces of text in different registers, and that seemed to be a good, a very natural form for that. And it's your photography in the... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've, for a long time, I, I, since I arrived there, I mean, everybody's got a camera in their pocket now, and, and, and I, I got interested in um, just the... Bits of communication, informal communication that one finds in the city, graffiti and flyers and you know various sorts of messages. And there's often there's a, there's a sort of tone of crazy that's underlying, you know, just at the edges of your of your consciousness as you're going through the the streets. Yeah, and also things that are that out of context seem amusing or whatever. I mean, I, I'm very fond of a picture that I have of, of, uh, of a sign on a, on a silver background that says, no access to jazz. <laughs> and all that, I mean, it's actually a door that people are trying to get to a place called Jazz at the Lincoln Centre. And, and, but the notion that you're saying formal thing, no access to jazz. Uh, I, I like all that. I like found poetry. There's a, yeah. again, there's a good, good history of, of, of people doing that. I have a, it's like a burn something. I have, a, I have a, 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 a small press book from the 1960s that somebody's doing a very similar thing of, of, of just kind of picking out ephemera and, and, and finding the poetry in, that, in those ephemera. I mean, I'd actually like to make a, if anybody is a publisher in here, 
I'd, I'd like to make a book with just, with just the photographs because there's only a few pictures in the Moondog right. thing. I have hundreds and hundreds of these things, and, uh, and some of them are really great. Yeah. Oh, it, it, I was thinking uh, when you were talking about all of these signs that are all around you in New York, these snatches of conversation which sound meaningful or absurd, or the bits of graffiti, that sort of tension between, um, in the part you read to us of Gods Without Men, the idea of uh, the hermeneutics of despair, you know, that um, in this enormous swarm of information that we're in, we're all uh, pattern hunting, and it seems to me that um, in your novels there's, uh, there are moments where we discover rhymes, where, where there appears to be order in the universe, and other moments where it's all revealed to uh, fall apart. Is that... Um, is that your view of the universe? Is yes. it? Uh, are you looking for the face of God? As I'm sure many people in this room will realise, I mean, Walter is is a sly little Walter Benjamin reference, and that whole uh, you know notion of the of the, the broken world is is this um, the Kabbalistic idea. You know, so Bachman is is is, is you know, Bachman's trading program is also he's also a Kabbalist. He's you know he's sifting through these these. Fragments for the the remains of the Zohar. Uh, um, I'm I'm interested in how one deals with with the unknown in Rumsfeldian terms. You know, we all know there's the unknown unknowns and the known un- unknowns. And and I mean, in a way, what you do what you do with the experience of the unknown or is very determinant of 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 how you deal with the world more more generally. You know, either you give it a name, you you know you call it God or something else, or the aliens are going to come down and, and form, give meaning to the, the partial fragmented experience you have, or you declare that there is nothing in the beyond, and, or, you know, or, I mean, I'm very interested in all sorts of negative mystical traditions which do this sort of subtracting and stripping away, and, and things which point outside themselves, there are certain things you cannot Say, I think, as I as I said up there, you know, the the, the idea of things that one can't name or, or can't uh, can't look upon directly that you can point towards or indicate or, or or kind of you know allow spaces to exist that you know that that, that give things meaning and yeah, I mean, all the, all the, all those sort of thoughts about a fragment. I mean, this, you know, this is all. Quite traditional. I mean, it's a long romantic. Looping back to yeah. modernism and uh, yeah, only before that, yeah, the romantic fragment and you know, broken columns and all the rest of it. Well, we've we've reached the lim- limits of knowledge and touched on apocalypse. That feels like a very good place to, uh, right. to finish. <laughs> so I think I'll I'll hand over to um, questions from everyone here, if that's all right. Um, thank you so much. between two of your words, Gods Without Men and uh, Twice Upon a Time. Mm-hmm. And uh, in one of the interviews, I think it was the one Barnes and Nobles uh, in the US, you uh, said that you were actually writing these two works at the same time and uh, described the sort of shuffling between the horizontally arranged uh, space of the desert and the vertical layout of the city. Mm-hmm. So um, I would like to have your views on uh, the experience of place and space, the way that you thought about these two categories when you wrote the books. Yeah, thanks. So, so Gods Without Men is the book that I, I ended up writing when the Indian book fell apart. 
I, I mean, I actually what happened, and while I was having these experiences and making these notes that became twice upon a time, I was sitting in this office failing to write this other novel, and some friends of mine who were in Los Angeles said that they were taking a road trip out to Joshua Tree in the Mojave, and if I was just freaking out, which I was, then I should just come with them. I, I ended up on a very strange road trip with a, with a couple with a, a small baby, and, the, and they seemed very happy to see me because as it turned out they were in the process of their marriage was dissolving so I'm sort of in a, in a car with this very tense family grouping going out into the middle of I'd been in that desert once before when I got stuck in LA on 9-11 as you remember they closed the airspace and so there's nowhere I was supposed to fly out on September 12th and I had a very uncomfortable experience trying to give back a rental car at LAX on the tensest moment in modern American <laughs> history where I pretty much almost got shot. I was a bearded man <laughs> with swarthy skin driving a car with out-of-state plates very slowly around the perimeter of an airport. <laughs> that, after that, I, just, I wanted to get out of LA. Also, people were getting very punchy. People were getting very sort of flag-waving and, and, and weird. And um, so I thought I would drive out into the desert and be on my own for a bit. And so I, that was my first experience of being out in, in the Mojave. And then I went back with my friends and <coughs> realised that there was... It, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's the anti-New York. It's, it's a place where you have this, these vast spaces uh, and an experience of solitude and you become... It can be quiet enough for you to start hearing the, you know, the blood pulsing around your ears. And... and um, yeah, so I mean, it became the genesis of a book. I started writing a short story about a couple in a motel, and uh, and that very rapidly the aliens turned up. And then I, for a while, I, I really didn't know how formally how what these things had to do with each other. And, I, and so I I made a rule that I, I would do what you're precisely supposed not to do. At, you know, at writing school, people will tell you that I thought I would not try and impose a form on what I was writing or question the notion that certain things had to be together if something felt like it had to be in that project then it would be in that project and I would it would work itself out eventually and it you know, became this sort of multi this sort of thing with tendrils really and and I had an excuse there you know for two or three years afterwards to to, to, to keep going back out to the desert and I made various trips sometimes on my own and sometimes with with other people and still I'm very proud of being probably the only person ever to manage to, to, to fully write off a trip to Burning Man as a business <laughs> expense. But yes, yeah, so, yeah, so I, 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 I used the desert as an escape from the city and that allowed, allowed me to fall properly in love with the city as well because I was kind of getting the, the sort of psychological space that was, was uh, um, lacking a bit at the beginning. You had a question and, and then you, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's a real pleasure to hear you read, and the section from Gods Without Men that you chose to read is a section uh, we were sort of discussing in the workshop, and it's a section I've been looking at quite closely. My question is, it's a fairly banal question, but I understand that you were studying an MA in critical theory or philosophy at Warwick, perhaps? I, yeah, I was in the philosophy department at Warwick doing a philosophy and literature MA. And I, um, of course, then you go on to talk about Walter Benjamin. Um, when I was reading that, I was very struck by Benjamin and Lukács and Gershom Scholem and Adorno as well. So I, I sort of wanted to ask you a little bit about what kinds of philosophy you were studying and how consciously you've, you've 
held the kind of critical register of philosophical discourse, particularly that Germanic messianic tradition, alongside your, you know, the creativity of writing. I think I didn't really fall in love with Benjamin until a bit later. I mean, that's, I mean, Benjamin was somebody who turned up. I mean, I read bits and pieces, but it hadn't really kind of spoken to me. I mean, that I was at work at a very uh, fertile moment in the early '90s when the philosophy department was at war with itself. I mean, and there were there were the uh, Anglo-American logical positivists, there were various sort of phenomenologists, and there was a sort of insurgent group of Deleuzeans. <laughs> who, uh, and as a as a sort of literary type, I was supposed to be, I was basically supposed to be writing about romanticism, and, and, and you know, and I mean, clearly should have been a good Derrida, which I sort of was a bit when I I turned up in as far as you know as an undergraduate, you can you really know what you're talking about at all. But then I got very, I got very excited by the things that the Deleuzean lot were talking about because they were heading down the corridor to talk to people who were doing artificial intelligence, and suddenly it was, in, you know, there were all these uh, scientific papers were being passed around about emergence and complexity theory and chaos and all these kind of mathematical ideas that were unfamiliar to me as a, you know, humanities undergraduate, and so I kind of jumped what I, you know what I was supposed to be doing in favour, I didn't really know where it was going, this kind of the, a lot of these ideas about networks. And, um, and at the time there was a sense that the, there was a sort of emancipatory politics attached to the, to the network. And also there was, there was a teacher there like Nick Land who w was giving papers that were like William Burroughs cut-ups and involved <laughs> a lot of, you know, a lot of... Uh, so cyberpunk things, and you know, I mean, he was dishing out acid tabs to various people, and and, and it all it all got quite messy. And um, so the and the idea, you know, the idea being that we were supposed to be schizophrenizing ourselves in order to, to escape the various sort of molar constraints on our uh, existences. But all that was all that was very new and interesting, and kind of actually cleared away a lot of dead matter for me and it made me feel that there was a kind of register, a technical register maybe, and very non-literary register of writing that was that was important. So the um and I've carried on reading in that in in, in what broadly gets called that kind of continental theory tradition since then and I find that useful for for, for framing my writing even though as writing much of that work is, is awful jargon laden, you know, I mean, you're, I mean, as a philosopher, you're almost encouraged to write as badly as possible in case somebody accidentally understands what you mean and realises that there's nothing much to it. But after that, as a result of that stuff, I, I developed an interest in the internet, and it was early enough for not many people to be using the internet, so 92, 93, and, and that actually turned out to be, when I realised I didn't want to be a philosophy academic, I, I, that turned into my only marketable skill. <laughs> And so I then became a journalist writing about the internet and that kind of carried me through the rest of the 90s and then many of those technical interests and so on and that sort of register of writing was, was something that I, I carried on with and, you know, journalistic writing is the absolute opposite of that philosophical writing, you know, you can't... You know, I mean, I spent a while with all my editors crossing out my first three paragraphs. <laughs> 
Uh, Richard Powers, um, the author, said a couple of years ago that the, the real distinction in literature now is between literature which acknowledges interdependence and literature which denies interdependence, interdependence yeah, no. and a, a literature which shuts down and denies that interdependence. Mm. And um, David Mitchell was talking, and he said he agreed with the statement, and his work it came across through cosmopolitan subjectivities and through re-emergence of ethics. And I just wondered whether you also agree with Powers' statement and whether you're, uh, you think your fiction kind of reflects like, the global society of the contemporary world in its connection with like, economic influence from social and cultural matters. Um, I, su I suppose, it, I mean, if interdependence is, you know, is, 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 a, is a word for the, the, the sort of networked nature of what it means to be a, to be a subject and to be a, a self in the contemporary world, absolutely, I think that's... I mean, that's sort of why I'm circling around when I'm grumbling about the investment in a sort of luxuriant, old-fashioned psychology in, in the British novel in particular, in that it seems to deny that interdependence. I think that's, that's the aesthetic and intellectual failing of a lot of that work, is that it's a psychology that is lagging behind our actual experience. You know, if you, if you are on your phone on the train, and you're kind of having a conversation with somebody who's in another space, and you're half you know, that you have a, a sense of self and a sense of, a, 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 you know, in a very nuts and bolts way, a sense of experience that is not, not that, that kind of psychological experience. So, yeah, yes, I, I agree with that. I think what I do with interconnectedness is not, not quite what David Mitchell. Does with it. I mean, I mean, I I think David is essentially a neater human being. Than <laughs> I, I mean, Cloud Atlas is, is his response to If on a Winter's Night at Traveller. I mean, he hated reading If on a Winter's Night at Traveller so much because of the open-ended nature of those stories. And, and I mean, I think that's what that, that that text is designed to frustrate you and annoy you in precisely that way. But he then closed it up. He, he finished all the stories and made a very neat kind of. Um, Sort of Russian doll form, um, love and dearly, but I think I think that's fake. I think ultimately that neatness is 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 is, is not true. You know, there's there's some there's something that there's there's something messier and less resolved that I would like to 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 explore about about the networked nature of of our contemporary life. My question is kind of following on from that comment about the rapid shift that we kind of undergo constantly in our globalised society. And it seems like you're, you're really interested and, and probably are fairly critical about the way in which we are kind of the sum of our data, a sum of kind of, you know, either a, a profit margin or salary figure or a kind of digital persona. And, and these are, 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 feel quite tangible things, but yet are, are very kind of intangible uh, and that, that that seeming contradiction so sending an email seems like you know a strange kind of compression of time but a, mm. a strange transgression of space as well so i'm, I'm wondering like you know in, in your interest um in, in in these intangibles like how, how do you think the material form of the word in, in literature can, can kind of express that because it seems like I'm that's not really sure uh, i understand um so how do we say communicate or in, in literary form that that transmission of an email, or, which actually yeah. is so important in our everyday lives? Because you know we hundreds of transmissions take place, and that kind of constructs ourselves in this way that we haven't quite kind of understood. I mean, um, how, how how do you 
you know, how like you indicate distance in time and space really with, through you so know, in, that, in a like piece of, of fiction. Um, I'm writing a lot of things at the moment that are juxtapositions of very different registers. The, the jolt from one thing, I mean there's a bit of that because of that men in that there's yeah. a sort of temporal jolt and then there are lots of things that are unexplained in between the different sort of planes of that novel but um, more recently than that I've, I've been making texts that are usually being kind of presented as non-fiction but but you know, we'll, we'll try different ways of speaking in different kind of tones and, and, and different subject matter and just butt them up against each other and that experience of jolting from one to the other as a reader, I know when I come against that as a reader it does something interesting, it feels interesting at the moment yeah. and it feels, um, I mean a very important book for me was, was 2666, Bologna, because I, I did feel absolutely at sea in the transition for me. Yeah, this, this is, a, if you haven't read it, it's a novel that has long slabs of, of, of story that seem initially completely unrelated. You know, at the first you're, you're reading about some academics who are, who are chasing down a forgotten author and then suddenly you're in a sort of version of Ciudad Juarez with this kind of relentless description of the murder of, 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 of women in that Mexican border town. And the, the jolt from one to the other and the experience of, of trying to bridge that mentally and understand why these things should sit next to mm -hmm. each other seems to me as an interesting technique. I mean, maybe that's what translate, the translate thing comes down to. I mean, I, I, you know, Dave, is all, it's all cosmic harmony with him. It's all kind of <laughs> everything is, you know, everything, the tiny echo is actually, you know, and, and the, the walk-on part from the character that you know, you've read several hundred pages worth. I mean, I, as I say, I'm suspicious of that because it seems like an orrery or something. It seems, it seems, uh, you know, he's domesticated something which should be much weirder and and and, and much should more highly contingent. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Much less resolved. Yes, you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, just coming back to the discussion of uh, what we think is new in the contemporary period in writing, and you know, the outrage always being asked about the death of the novel, and you're absolutely right. You know, being a topic for, for many, many years, and I was struck um, because I, I can't remember exactly what it's called, but Benjamin wrote an essay in the 30s about the death of the novel and how he was waiting for it to happen, and he really wanted the death of the novel to come, precisely so that we could have a more creative form of expression using um, pamphlets, politicised. Because he, 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 of all people, is a model for, for you know, for this other way of, of writing. Yeah. I certainly think that David Shields, most of David Shields' book is actually Walter Benjamin. Absolutely, um, and, and, and it sounds um, in keeping perhaps with some of your interest in found poetry and graffiti mm. and, and a distinctively politicised um, understanding of, of, of language and it's the way it moves around the world. Um, and, and here with our students we ask them to think very much about what contemporary means and how do we define a term and, and how do we periodise it and kind of long arguments about that. But I ask them to think about the contemporary as, as being with another time, that, that is kind of one of the literal etymological definitions mm. of it. Mm. So I suppose I wanted to pose to you, if you're talking about the way in which we need to strive towards a new sort of fiction, particularly in our British, the, you know, the, 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 the problems with literary realism as, as you've been defining, we need new uh, networked aesthetic forms. Um, how do you see yourself as with other times in that contemporary understanding? There's an interesting difference between my contemporary artist friends and my novelist friends, and the contemporary artist friends are in and out of each other's shows and have a very strong kind of sense of what we are all up to now, 
and don't have they're not they're not necessarily having the same relationship with past older older work. Whereas every, I mean, every serious reader I know, novelist or, or, or not, has a reading practice that is, you know, you're one you know, reading Balzac Quante and getting something important and fresh out of that old book. And then reading something, you know, I, I certainly don't read the latest fiction that is getting reviewed in the papers in any systematic way. In fact, I almost kind of run away from it until it's been filtered for gatekeep, you know, for some, you know, let some, you know, if people start talking about something, then I'm off and do it. I mean, I'm not, it's only, it's actually only really the professional publishers who are forced onto that, onto that particular kind of cycle. So then there's a, there's a slightly extended sense of the contemporary for fiction writers, I think. Um, I can't remember who it was, that you are, you're only as good as the obscurity of your sources. One of the interesting activities is maybe trying to build a canon for yourself that is not the canon as, as, as he is known to, to most people. Like, you know, you, you, I, I have another sort of writing practice which has developed over the last couple of years uh, as a screenwriter and I collaborate with my wife and it's in a fully commercial context and you know we are writers for hire and it's a fucking weird thing to do and we wrote a, we've written a, 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 a movie about Bruce Chapman and he was I actually think it's something of a charlatan but he was very very good at picking out a canon for himself that was uh, not the uh, and you know, not the accepted canon at the time, and 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 just appearing maybe more, he was a very brilliant man, but he appeared more brilliant because of sources of he chose. I mean, I, and a writer I like much less than Bruce Chatwin is Alan de Botton, uh, <laughs> who has very cannily he he will never ever go near any of the he'll never talk to you about Walter Benjamin, he'll never talk to you about the, the canon of, of theoretical writers who many other people are reading. He'll, he'll definitely talk about Pascal, or he'll, he picks, uh, you know, or Schopenhauer. But you can't really kind of, you know, he'll never talk to you about Schopenhauer in a way that I recognise as a way one would want to talk about Schopenhauer. But he, you know, the, that sort of canon formation that gives him a, an appearance of uh, erudition that uh, I think is slightly unwarranted. Before I left, I asked some of the attendees where they would recommend somebody start with the work of Harry Kinsu. I think the book I uh, would recommend uh, is Transmission, uh, and then one of my favourites would be Gods Without Men, uh, although it's not uh, the easiest uh, because it's uh, fragmentary, uh, but it is uh, very enjoyable. I'd say Gods Without Men. Um, it's very similar to David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas, which was turned to a big blockbuster film uh, a couple of years ago. Um, it links um, past and present and transnational narratives, and it's a, it reflects the, the interconnected present we currently find ourselves in. Uh, I would recommend Transmission to begin because it's, um, it's a novel with great characters and comedy and bounce, but which actually has something very insightful and complex to say about the transnational interconnected world uh, that we're living in. And it helps that it's quite a slender novel as well. Quick read. 
This has been a conversation with Harry Kunzu. In a reading accompanying this podcast, Harry selects sections from two of his books, Gods Without Men and Memory Palace, which you will find on the Pod Academy website.